With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of the Personal Finance Show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 107. It's titled, Work, Freedom, and Financial Peril. Author and naturalist Henry David Thoreau was born into the family of the walkers, as he describes it. He wrote in his essay, Walking, which was published in The Atlantic in 1862, that, quote, I cannot preserve my health and spirits unless I spend four hours a day at least, and it is commonly more than that, sauntering through the woods and over the hills and fields, absolutely free from all worldly engagements. In the mid-19th century, Thoreau had plenty of places to walk. He wrote, at present, in this vicinity, the best part of the land is not private property. The landscape is not owned, and the walker enjoys comparative freedom. But possibly the day will come when it will be partitioned off into so-called pleasure grounds, which a few will take a narrow and exclusive pleasure only, when fences shall be multiplied and man traps and other engines invented to confine men to the public road. And walking over the surface of God's earth shall be construed to mean trespassing on some gentleman's grounds. He was a throw with somewhat prescient in that this right to roam on private property, which remains alive and well in Sweden, Scotland, Norway, Finland, and other European countries, would be supplanted with the right to exclude here in the U.S. In 1922, the U.S. Supreme Court in McKee versus Gratz ruled that when a landowner posts a no trespassing sign, that the common understanding that the public is permitted to hunt, fish, and travel on unclosed land is revoked. Now, fortunately, in my home state of Idaho, there remains ample public land where walkers can roam freely. And even on the private land, on the farms, I've often spent days cross-country skiing uh, across open farm fields. And, and generally, if you're respectful, the farmers, they don't mind. Residents in other states, though, are not so lucky. A couple of weeks ago, we moved to our farm in Teton Valley. It overlooks the Tetons, about 80 acres and it's only been in private hands for about 150 years. Prior to that, the land was owned by the Shoshone, Bannock, and Blackfeet Indian tribes, and later by fur trappers. Generations of moose and elk have ignored the fact that the land is private. I had a moose here last month right outside my window, just standing there. Unfortunately, now they've gone off to the river. A red-tailed hawk nested in one of our pine trees early this spring. He was eventually driven out by the starlings when they return from their winter habitat. But the red, red-tailed hawks still fly over, and they're looking for ground squirrels, which poke out of their holes and scurry across their front yard. They're alert in early May, and then they're only around until about mid-July to early August. Then, then they hibernate again. These squirrels hibernate nine months out of the year. Back with Thoreau, though, when he wasn't walking or riding, he was often surveying. That was his primary source of income for many years. Despite his professional efforts, 
though, he recognized these imaginary lines that he drew to divide the land were only temporary. He wrote, These farms which I have myself surveyed, these bounds which I have set up, appear dimly still as through a mist, but they have no chemistry to fix them. They fade from the surface of the glass. The world with which we are commonly acquainted leaves no trace, and it will have no anniversary. The plat lines of the original farms Thoreau surveyed have been redrawn numerous times and the original fences torn down. But even if the fences had remained untouched, they would be buried in dust by now. Annie Dillard, in her essay for the time being, writes, Earth sifts over things as dirt or dust. If you stay still, earth buries you, ready or not. The debris on the top of your feet or shoes thickens, windblown dirt piles around it, and pretty soon your feet are underground. The rate at which dirt buries us varies. New York City streets level rises every century. Mexico City, in which Cortez walked, is now 30 feet underground. On every continent, we sweep floors and tabletops, not only to shine the place, but to forestall burial. We live on dead people's heads. Scratching under a suburb of St. Louis, archaeologists recently found 13 settlements, one on top of another, some of which lasted longer than St. Louis has. The dirt and rocks upon which Thoreau walked are buried, as are the fields he surveyed. Thoreau's headstone, which is inscribed simply with the name Henry, remains above ground, but only because caretakers reposition it. The crypt itself sinks deeper and deeper. LaPrelle and I were in New Orleans in February, and we toured the St. Louis Cemetery. And there, because of the water table is very high, they bury in this Catholic cemetery, they bury people in these crypts above ground. And what's interesting is you can see them sinking. But even more fascinating is they, they put the individuals in a casket, and they put them above ground in these cement crypts. And then with, with the New Orleans hot weather and the cement, it essentially cremates the body. And after five or six years, they pull out the casket and then they put the the bones or whatever remains, the ashes, way in the back, and then they use the crypt again. And so you see these burial plots with five or six people from multiple generations there. But with Thoreau, what remains? His crypt is there, what he surveyed is gone, but what remain are his words. His lasting impact was not his surveying work, but his prose, which speaks from the dust. 150 years, 54 years after Thoreau's essay on walking was published in The Atlantic, this May 2016, the same magazine published a piece by the writer Neil Gabler. It was titled, Shame, The Shame of Middle Class Americans. Gabler tells how the Federal Reserve conducted a survey in which they asked Americans, how would they pay for a $400 emergency? 47% of respondents said they would cover the expense by borrowing the money or selling something. Gabler admits he is one of the 47%. His finances are in a perilous state. He lives paycheck to paycheck, assuming a check actually arrives given the sporadic nature of his writing gigs. He has had to borrow money from his adult daughters because he and his wife ran out of heating oil in the winter. Of course, these are the daughters for whom Gable and his wife sacrificed to pay private school tuition and help support for their 
undergraduate education at Stanford and Emory universities. Gabler writes, I am a financial illiterate, or worse, an ignoramus. I don't offer that as an excuse, just as a fact. I made choices without thinking through the financial implications, in part because I didn't know about those implications, and in part because I assumed I would always overcome any adversity, should it arrive. I chose to become a writer, which is a financially perilous profession, rather than do something more lucrative. I chose to live in New York rather than in a place with a lower cost of living. I chose to have two children. I chose to write long books that required years of work, even though my advances would be stretched to the breaking point, and it turned out beyond. We all make those sorts of choices, and they obviously affect, even determine our bottom line. But without getting too metaphysical about it, these are the choices that define who we are. We don't make them with our financial well-being in mind, though maybe we should. We make them with our lives in mind. The alternative is to be another person. Gabler continues, I don't ask for expect any sympathy. I am responsible for my quagmire. No one else. I don't get galled into over I didn't get galled into overextending myself by unscrupulous credit merchants. Basically, I screwed up royally. I lived beyond my means primarily because my means kept dwindling. I didn't take the actions I should have taken, like selling my house and downsizing. Though selling might not have covered what I owed on my mortgage. He admits he made a mistake, but his life is what he chose. And Gabler has written some truly outstanding books, including biographies of Walt Disney, Barbara Streisand, and Walter Winchell. Words that will endure well beyond the grave. I wonder what Thoreau would have thought of Gabler's financial choices and his essays. Thoreau's financial situation was every bit as perilous as Gabler's. Thoreau, like Gabler, would have owned up to the fact that much of his financial duress was due to his own choices. Yet while Gabler bows his head in financial shame, Thoreau celebrated the freedom to write and to walk that his financial choices afforded him. He called it living deliberately. The famous quote from Walden is, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not when it came to die discovered that I had not lived. Gabler's article in The Atlantic has caused me a lot of reflection. I sent out a link to that article to members of the Insider's Guide. Or you can get in the show notes at moneyfortherestofus.net. If you're not a member of my Insider's Guide, each week I'll send you links to the show notes as well as a summary article of that week's episode. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.net. Or if you're a U.S.-based listener, you can text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. Both Thoreau and Gabler were, were impoverished. And they were impoverished based on their choices. More, almost half of Americans are also impoverished. In that article, there was a quote by Edward Wolf, who is an economist at New York University, apparently has a book coming out this year on wealth. And he examined the number of months that a family, headed by someone in their prime working age, so between 24 and 55, how long could they self-fund their current level of consumption if they had to just liquidate their financial assets. In other words, their income got cut off. All they had was their, their 
essentially their financial assets, excluding their home equity. They found that in 2013, prime working age families in the bottom two income quintiles had no net worth at all. And that's nothing to spend. So that, that's literally living paycheck to paycheck. A family in the middle quintile with an average income of roughly $50,000 could continue its spending for six days, one week, and then they would, then they would have no money to, to buy food. Even in, the article says, even in the second highest quintile, a family, so this would be, I don't actually have the data in front of me in terms of, but I I suspect the second highest quintile would be families making right around $100,000. They could continue their normal consumption for only 5.3 months. That's why we have emergency savings. And I got an email the other day, somebody, remember the, the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, asking how he should invest his emergency savings. And the, the, the simple answer is you don't have to invest your emergency savings. Most people don't have it. If you have six months, it's fine to keep it in cash. There is no magic investment that, that can get without taking some type of risk, either credit risk or some type of interest rate risk to earn a higher return. So your emergency savings, six months, it's, it can be in cash. Now, and if that's all you have, it should be in cash. If you have assets beyond six months, then you could, you could invest some of that six-month savings in more aggressive asset classes just so you have because you can still have the liquidity. So let's say you have a year's worth of savings or year's worth of income saved up. You can, you can invest nine months of that or, or 75% of that a little more aggressively because you don't want to have huge risk of capital loss, but there's some flexibility there. But for most people, they just have to get the, the savings, the, the six months just there to, to help them out. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs, that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. 
LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com David. That's linkedin.com David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Now, I, I have pondered a lot just sort of how do we balance this freedom, the freedom that Thoreau had and then the freedom Gabler had. He chose a freedom-filled life to write and pursue projects that he wanted. It came with a cost. It came with some financial peril. But I think he's going to be fine. I mean, his kids, if things got worse, his kids are well-educated, well-employed. They can help out. That's probably not the best situation, probably not one that he would prefer. But he's very similar to Thoreau. My son, my oldest son, is currently in Korea. And he's doing, he's in his first week of his internship with with Hyundai Shipping Company. And it's been an eye-opener to see what it's like to, to go somewhere where the days are nine to ten hours. And and he he was commenting this morning, he realizes how important it is to have a a job or an employment that he feels that he's adding value, that there's a sense of mission to, that he can't can't fathom spending 10 hours a day doing something that just to make the money. And and that is probably symptomatic of his generation. I also got an email a few weeks ago from a radiation oncologist. He's 43 years old, and he talked about work. And he says, I greatly value my work taking care of cancer patients. I'm also 43 years old and I'm married and have a 10-year-old daughter. To quote one of your terms, I feel time poor. When I regularly leave my wife and daughter at home at 6.30 a.m. to drive to work, I have seen many... Die to work. I have seen many young people younger than myself die of cancer, and I often tell my wife that a lifetime is not enough to spend together. So it is difficult to drive away from home each morning and know that I will not return for about 12 hours, having left most of my time in vital energy at work. It's easier for me if I think of my work as a means to build our character. Work as a means to grow and discover ourselves spiritually and work as a means to help others. That's what work should be. And and my son is struggling with, and internships only a number of weeks, but he, he realizes that what this particular oncologist said to me is that's what work should be. I occasionally get emails or have conversations with individuals who are in lucrative careers but don't feel fulfilled. And it's terrifying to to make the change. I went through that same transition myself. I was very, very well compensated, but I got to the point where I something was missing. And, and I remember talking to, to a friend who was in HR, 
And, and he told me, you know when it's time to leave. You know in your gut. And, and I made the jump. And it was really, really hard. One reason, though, because as you get into your 40s, you realize that time is clicking by. There's a quote I love by Annie Dillard in her essay, Waking Up Wild. She writes, knowing you are alive is feeling the planet buck under you, rear, kick, and try to throw you while you hang on to the ring. It is riding the planet like a log downstream, whooping. Or conversely, you step aside from the dreaming, fast, loud routine and feel time as stillness about you and hear the silent air ask in so thin a voice, have you noticed you will die Do you remember, remember, remember? Then you may feel your life as a weekend, a weekend you cannot extend. Yoshido Kenko in Essays in Idleness, I've shared this quote earlier in earlier episodes. If our life did not fade and vanish like the dews of Adashino's grave or the drifting smoke from Torib's burning grounds, but lingered on forever, how little the world would move us. It is the inferior nature of things that makes them wonderful. I have to admit, I'm being a little more philosophic this episode, mainly because we, LaPro and I, have moved out to the farm, and our youngest daughter has moved into college campus. We're empty nesters, and we're, we're sort of in this valley. The, the wildlife is magical. The solitude is magical. But we're in a new phase, and it's hard. I told LaPerl the other day, for 24 years, we had somebody sitting with us at our table, and, and now we don't. And it, it's, it's a tough transition, and it's one that we're experimenting with because we've experimented moving out to the farm. Can we actually stand to live here and, and be where the scenery is amazing? But we're going to have to invite people over just so we don't get get lonely, and then we'll figure out what the next phase is. But you have, you have to experiment. And how do you do that? One of the really cool books I read this year was by Elizabeth Gilbert. It was called Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear. And, and one of the challenges when you shift from you, you've been in a very successful career, a career that, that is highly rewarding, but you feel like it's time to, 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 to try something else, but you have no idea what that is. There is not this, this passion that says, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit my job and, and, and open up a chocolate factory and start making chocolate. I, my experience is most people don't have that. They're not quite sure what to do. And her advice was excellent. She writes, curiosity only ever asks one simple question. Is there anything you're interested in? Anything? Even a tiny bit? No matter how mundane or small? The answer need not set your life on fire or make you quit your job or force you to change your religion or send you into a fugue state. It just has to capture attention for a moment. But in that moment, if you can pause and identify even one tiny speck of interest in something then curiosity will ask you to turn your head a quarter of an inch and look at that thing a wee bit close. Do it. It's a clue. 
It might seem like nothing, but it's a clue. And the next, and the next. Remember, it doesn't have to be a voice in the desert. It's just a little harmless scavenger hunt. Following the scavenger of curiosity can lead you to amazing, unexpected places. It may eventually lead you to your passion, albeit through a strange, untraceable passageway of back alleys, underground caves, and secret doors. Or it may lead you nowhere. You might spend your whole life following your curiosity and have absolutely nothing to show for it, and in the end, except one thing. You will have the satisfaction of knowing that you passed your entire existence in devotion to the noble virtue of inquisitiveness, and that should be more than enough for anyone to say that they lived a rich and splendid life. We get one shot at this life. Perhaps, like, like me, you believe that you'll live beyond the grave. I surely hope so. But even if you don't, we have one shot to create something that will extend beyond the grave in terms of what we write, what we create, in terms of our legacy with our children. We get one shot. And we don't want to waste it in some dead-end job that we can't stand. And, and maybe our financial decisions haven't been great, and, and maybe we feel trapped, but we got to find a way to get out. Thoreau manages, Gabler manages to do it. He's not in great financial strait. He feels a little ashamed about it, but I'm not sure he would have made different choices. I think he's lived a rewarding life, and we, we have to be somewhat financially responsible But we can't entrap ourselves into something we just can't stand. One final quote by Annie Dillard. She's talking about writing, but I think it applies to life overall. She writes, One of the few things I know about writing is this. Spend it all. Shoot it. Play it. Lose it. All. Right away. Every time. Don't hoard what seems good for a later place in the book. Or in your life, for that matter. Or another book. Give it. Give it all. Give it now. Something more will rise for later. Something better. These things fill from behind, from beneath, like well water. Similarly, the impulse to keep to yourself what you have learned is not only shameful, it is destructive. Anything you do not give freely and abundantly becomes lost to you. You open your safe and find ashes. The other day I was talking to a new friend I met here and we were talking about mountain biking and I said, I, I just, I don't mountain bike anymore. Uh, I cycle across, I road bike, but I don't mountain bike because I don't like to fall. And he related a conversation he had with a bike store owner here who says the reason why, he's telling this gentleman, the reason why you don't like to fall in mountain biking is you don't fall enough. We have to be willing to make mistakes. LaPro and I have moved here to the valley. Maybe it was a mistake. We'll see how it goes. We're trying different things out as we, we move to this new phase in life. We all have to do that. We have to take risk. We have to find the right balance between work and freedom and creating a legacy, no matter what that is. Maybe it's our children. Maybe it's our writing. Maybe it's painting. Something that will, that is hopefully extend beyond the grave. And if it doesn't, at least we have lived a rich, inquisitive life. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. 
And if you would like some additional help with your investment portfolio, understanding some of the concepts that we've talked about in in earlier episodes on the economy and investing, you can get that at the Money for the Rest of Us Hub. There we have over 350 members that we have formed a community. There's a member forum where where members interact and, and ask questions. There's a weekly premium podcast episode that that has essentially evolved into uh, where I'm answering specific questions from members. Sometimes I actually dissect their existing investment portfolio and, and analyze it and help, not giving specific investment advice, all done in the context of, of general education for the entire group. There are model portfolios on there for those that, that want to transition their existing portfolio and existing to a, a model portfolio with specific holdings and know what they could potentially earn over the next 10 years investing. You can get information for that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. It's something you can try out for a month or two, or if you want a 15% discount, you can try it for a year, 30-day money-back guarantee, moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week. 